The first reading is Ecclesiastes um, chapter 5, verse 10 to 12. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. The second reading is Luke chapter 16 on page 740. The parable of the shrewd manager. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be a manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had, he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than, than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in, in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is, is detestable in God's sight. <clears throat> the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the last stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced wife commits adultery. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, 
Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. That is the part of God's Word we're going to be looking at this morning. So there's uh, great value in keeping it open uh, if you're um, just passing through and visiting. It's great to have you amongst us and joining us today. Before we uh, look at it, before we pray, um, let me ask something outrageous. Uh, can, we, can we stand up and yeah, do it? Try it. It's not as hard as you think. You've done it already this morning. If you can see a gap in, in rows in front of you, particularly in this kind of area, be, be bold, brave and fill it. I know it's um, strange. Uh, Two reasons. One, it's much more pleasant for me to preach to chairs with people in it than chairs. Uh, the other reason is often there'll be people who kind of sneak back out after leaving their children in crèche and they kind of get in the back and they discover there's no seats for them uh, because we've all been, you know, treasuring those spots at the back. I know we're talking about money uh, and that's going to be incentive to stay further back, but be bold and brave and find those spots near the front. Thank you. Examples of grace all the time. It's great, isn't it? Uh, we are picking up uh, again on that road less travelled. Jesus' journey, he's got a determination to get down to Jerusalem. Uh, and we're seeing the pattern of what it looks like, not only for him to travel there, but what it will look like for us to follow along with him. Because he calls and asks for disciples. Uh, that means it points it's going to be a hard word. And let's pray that we might hear it well. Let's, let's pray now. Lord and Father, we thank you for your goodness in speaking to us and not leaving us ignorant of your ways. Uh, Father, we pray that as we said uh, at the start of our service, that we wouldn't be like uh, the people of Israel of old who had hard hearts and even though they heard the word, refused to listen. Father, instead we ask that we'll be people with soft hearts and that you would uh, reshape and change us to view life the way uh, you intended us to. Uh, Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work in each one of us. Uh, that we would more and more reflect uh, the Lord Jesus uh, and that we would long to follow after him and live his kind of life. Uh, in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. Uh, that's the words in verse 9 and they sound, I suspect, more at home in a modern self-help book uh, than from the lips of Jesus. Okay? We know money can buy a lot of things. Uh, from you know, the morning coffee to your dream home. If you've got enough money, it's all yours. Uh, money can even buy people. Uh, there are plenty of corrupted business types and politicians to prove that, that everyone's got their price. Uh, but of course, we all know money can't buy love. 
And yet, he says, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. Has Jesus not heard the Beatles song? You know, he clearly wants us to, to reevaluate our use of money, to rethink what it is we do with it. But, but before we get to how we should go out and how we should spend our money, which we will get to, we need to look at the context. We need to look at the parable that comes before this saying. So in the flow of what's been going on last week, if you're with us in the last chapter, Jesus told this outrageous story about a, a profligate and extravagant God who gives uh, to the completely undeserving at his own cost and to his own shame. And that was told to those kind of grumbling folk who didn't like the kind of people Jesus hung out with. Well, Jesus now has an edgy parable to those a little closer to home. It's an edgy parable in verse 1 for his disciples, that is, those who've already decided they'll follow after him. It's to his friends. They need to understand that wealth needs to be used shrewdly. Use it now in light of the future. And like many of Jesus' stories... He gets interested in by trying to offend the people he's talking to. Uh, so the parable of the Good Samaritan, if you know that, in Luke 10, uh, it was told to a faithful Jew and it made the hero of the story a cultural enemy. Uh, kind of like you know, the Nazi was the hero in there. Because uh, it's interesting to be offended, isn't it? It kind of draws you in. How can Jesus say such outrageous things? Last chapter, um, he made a, a, a bunch of social outcasts Um, or those who aren't esteemed into the equivalent of God. So there was a shepherd and a woman and this shameless father who all were equated to God. Uh, And we're going to read on, if you keep joining us in Luke, uh, to see how Jesus used the story of a corrupt judge as an incentive to be more prayerful. Jesus has a pattern of using stories to offend uh, before he gets to the point. And this time he insults the people who are close to him, those who are on his side, because he makes a crooked businessman the model for you and me to copy. Reading it with other kind of godly Christians this week, they found it off-putting. And I think that's great because it means they're feeling exactly what Jesus wants them to feel, a little bit uncomfortable as we get into this story. So the story itself is simple. Uh, A rich man tells his high-level manager in verse 2 that uh, charges of waste have been brought against him and he's got to finalise the accounts and clear out the desk. Uh, From the way that the manager reacts and the fact that he starts kind of planning his future elsewhere uh, and rather than trying to deny what's going on, it seems like he's been caught red-handed. It it wasn't just that this is a guy who's caught in an unfortunate climate of financial crisis. This guy is a crook. And he's just been caught out. But he does have, I suppose, fears of what's to come of him. He realises, well, he's a bit too proud to beg uh, and he's too weak to become a blue-collar worker after all those kind of lily-white hands uh, behind the desk in a white-collar job for all those years. He's not going to be going and becoming a brickie. So he has time and he has an idea. Verse 4. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So before the books are handed in, uh, he slashes the debts owed to the master. Uh, First is slashed by half, and because I don't think we're familiar with the oil-wheat exchange rate at the moment, think of it in terms of he's given a discount of about three years' salary of an average worker. That's that's a significant slashing. The next guy, uh, 20% off, but with the values of oil and wheat accounted for, he's getting the equivalent of eight, nine, ten years' worth 
of a average worker's salary cut from his bill. And we're left to assume that he'll keep working his way through the list of debtors in verse 5. Verse 5 suggests he's going to call all of them in one by one and that this is just the first two of many to come. It's a bold and a simple plan to secure friends who are going to look on him favourably when he joins the unemployment queue. And when the master finds out, verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager because he'd acted shrewdly. And I think that's the part that, first of all, makes us as Christians a little uncomfortable. You know, and I'm sure the, the disciples who were listening at the time were a little bit squirming as well. You know, how can Jesus tell a story where the hero, or the one commended, is dishonest? Uh, there have been people who try and explain it away and say that, oh, the discount he's offering is just, he's taken out his cut. You know, his personal commission has been removed. Um, it feels one, a little unbelievable that he was getting 50% as commission, but also it's unnecessary and, and actually takes the sting, the bite, the pain out of the story. It doesn't make sense of the story. Our discomfort comes more probably because we, we misunderstand what's being commended. He is not commended for dishonesty. Uh, the, the rich man doesn't actually like the deals he made. They cost him dearly. It cost him in a big way. But in the same way that you might acknowledge a worthy nemesis, he is commended for his shrewdness, i.e., I don't like what you did, but you beat me. Well done to you. Aren't you clever? You're a little bit shrewder than I was. You know, sh- shrewdness is acting sharply to make the most of any situation. And here is a guy who is shrewd. He knows how to maximise the situation. He knows build friendships to secure a future. And that's what Jesus picks up for his would-be disciples. And that's when he... He wants to push you a little more and insult you a little further. So the second part of verse 8. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Did you you hear Jesus insult you then? Um, If you're a Christian... He's insulting you now. He thinks you're not very money savvy. Uh, so it's one thing to have Christopher Hitchens or, or Richard Dawkins suggest that we Christians aren't very sharp. Uh, but here it is, it's Jesus saying, children of the light, Christians are simply not as money savvy as the unbelievers. Now, we've got people here today in finance. We had Mike up here earlier who works in that field and competent people and yet Jesus is saying as a child of the light you are not as good with your money as unbelieving colleagues it brings you in doesn't it the way he insults you why what are you saying Jesus well because the people of this age passing people are better at dealing with their own kind that is they're better at dealing with things that pass Wealth is a thing of this age. It is of their kind, people of this world. And so we should expect that unbelievers are actually better at it than we are. We should expect them to be cleverer than we are. We should expect them to be more committed to the cause of creating wealth than we are. Uh, The manager understands that the end goal of business survival, uh, and, and so he uses everything he's got to achieve it. And he understands how now affects then. And unbelievers, Jesus says, do that better than the sons of the light. Uh, perhaps in one of two ways, or maybe even both. Uh, Jesus is either saying, 
Um, the problem with we sons of the light and daughters of the light is we fail to realise you can't serve God and money, um, unlike you know, others who realise you, know, you can only serve money and so they pursue that. Uh, and so because we fail to realise that and try and straddle it, we end up doing both badly. It could be in that sense we're not as good as the uh, children of this world. Or instead of the fact of a problem of us being single-minded, lacking single-mindedness to be shrewd, it could be that, that we use our wealth for the kingdom to come and so it means we're not going to be the winners in earthly terms, earthly accumulation, that, that we'll lack the worldly values to appear shrewd to everyone else and make the most. Either way, Jesus is saying you need to learn from unbelievers. Wealth is to be used for the future. We need to use our passing wealth as shrewdly for eternal purposes as unbelievers use it as shrewdly to succeed in this life. And Jesus then pushes that idea further that that wealth and how you spend it is actually your spiritual litmus test. So in verse 10 to 12, there's this clear link between the way you manage worldly wealth and spiritual riches. Verse 11, if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who is going to trust you with true riches? And in case that's not clear enough for you, he follows with, that in, with this in verse 13. Um, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate one, love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Yeah, that's what the sons of this world get that we don't. They know you can't serve both God and money, and so they choose money. Uh, now, of course, they won't say that, uh, but as uh, St Chrysostom pointed out in the 4th century, worship isn't about prayer. He said this, um, Do you deny the charge of idolatry because you don't kneel in front of it? You are bowing much lower by your works that constitute civility. In order to recognise this, Look upon God and tell me who worships him more, those only who stand praying before him or those who do his will? Obviously the latter. And those who do his will serve mammon or wealth more diligently. It's, n- it's not about where you, whether you turn up to church or not. It's whose will you do? And as absurd as it seems, people do pour out their lives to worship money. Uh, Deborah Rowe's story of, of counselling a couple uh, with uh, a troubled teenager comes to mind in the, in the course of um, a conversation with them, counselling them. Uh, the parents were in there. It came out that the father was working 15 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, and when asked, you know, what would happen if you walked away, uh, his reply was, "I did that last year, and they only put my pay up by 20, and they put my pay up by 25%. How do you walk away from that?" There's modern slavery. There, there is a devout worshipper. And where we're not as shrewd as the sons of the world is that we think Jesus got it wrong. So he says you cannot serve both God and money. And we think and we hear that he said it's really tricky to serve God and money. But if you're you know, from the West and if you're clever, uh, if you're good at finance, and if we master the art of balance, we might just get away with it. That's what we heard him say. And yet, what did he say? He said, no, you can't serve God and money. Uh, shopping till you drop is acceptable behaviour even for Christians uh, in a way that something like smoking isn't. And yet I've seen uh, kind of discontentment destroy more people's faith than any nicotine addiction. 
that the love and service of money is ruinous to what is good. And yet we get in cycles of working longer and harder to make money that we all agree is not worthy of love. Not worthy of love and yet it's treasured. We didn't need, in one sense, that reading from Ecclesiastes to see that whoever loves money never has money enough. You know, that, that love of money is, is like drinking seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you become. It's just completely unsatisfying. You cannot serve both God and money. Money, like all of God's gifts to us, is to be used. Why? It is to be used to love him and love others. Money is for relationships. And so he goes on, there's that weird section in kind of uh, verse 14 to to 18 where he's insulted the money-loving Pharisees and makes a point how even with his kingdom coming, the principles uh, of of the Old Testament and the law are not overturned just because his heavenly kingdom arrives. And so he affirms the expectations don't drop. And he even cites a situation in verse 18 where, where the law is designed to preserve relationships. Uh, particularly he picks up the one of, of marriage and divorce. Money is for relationships. And if you don't get that this morning, the scary story is from verse 19. So Jesus tells a parallel story to the shrewd manager. So in verse 1, remember we met a rich man. In verse 19, we again meet a rich man and he dines sumptuously and each day he walks past this wretched beggar named Lazarus And when they both die, the wealthy man suffers and Lazarus is received into Abraham's arms. Now, it's not karma. We've got to make sure we don't misunderstand it. The rich man is not condemned because he is rich, but because he slipped into a a coma of callousness that wealth produces. So the the clincher is the way Jesus finishes the story. Um, This rich man thinks he still has all the power that money afforded him in his life. And so he wants to order Abraham around and the poor man around uh, to forewarn his brothers. He's used to ordering people around. He's used to the power that money brings. But notice in verse 24 what he called the poor man. He called him Lazarus. He knew his name all that time but he never spared a coin in his life to preserve that relationship. That finishing story is a sledgehammer illustration of of what happens if you do not heed the warning. The rich man didn't grasp how wealth now is for the future. Um, What he showed in his actions is that he truly worshipped money, even though he was really familiar with Abraham, but he didn't use his money to love God or love his neighbour. Back to that point in verse 9, isn't it? Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. So when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. It's not to buy friendship. It's to build friendship. Money can't buy you love, but money can express your love. Can you think of a single relationship where you have spent no money at all in connection to it? Yeah? A relationship where you've never made a phone call, and you've never shared a coffee or a drink or a meal, and you've never paid for a computer and an internet connection so you can communicate, Uh, a relationship where you never wore clothes when you turned up to meet them, Uh, uh, where you never spend any money on transport to go and see them and catch up. You know, it is impossible, I would want to suggest, to conduct a relationship without money. You know, it is impossible to do good and serve people without having money or the work that money purchases 
at your disposal. What's it mean for us? So I think that the classic Christian response to how do I do with my money is balance. You know, if I just get the balance right, it will all go smoothly. So uh, we know the dangers of serving money alone and, and, and we can see those signs are obvious. You know, money, uh, like work, is not for self-fulfilment. If, you, if you're looking to money to meet a, a need within you, well, you've got a false god and we can spot that. And, and, and like work, money is not for personal status. You know, if, if your self-identity uh, rises and falls uh, with the stock market, well, you need to beware. Yeah, and money is not for self-indulgence and indulgence. But we know all these things. And we know, you know money won't make you safe, but at the same time we know money's not evil. And we know that being poor doesn't mean necessarily you're, you're ungodly, but, but well, neither does being rich. And, and so we go for the balanced approach. And I think that's classically how I've kind of thought money. And Luke 16 has been very challenging to me to think about. No, balance is not on. Don't seek balance. Uh, if you want to serve God rather than money then don't settle for balance. Proactively use your money for relationships, to build friendships. Complex, um, I want to give you four parameters to work within in using your money. First one, use your money to preserve relationships. So consider, consider your wealth in terms of maintaining the relationships that already exist. Uh, a friend of mine was offered uh, a job uh, contract down in Canberra Lovely place for those who are in camera. Thank you. Yep. Uh, good job for him. It was uh, a promotion. Uh, there was a greater level of job security for him and a greater, I suppose, prospects for the future. Um, he turned it down uh, so that he could stay in Sydney and be close to his family and close to church. Uh, for him, not for everyone, but for him, it was a really wise decision. Uh, it was an expression of how he viewed wealth in service to his relationship to God and his family and others. That, that's the key. You know, use your money to preserve relationships. You know, the money you spend shouting coffee so you can catch up with a friend. Uh, the, the savings that you accumulate so you can pay for a ticket to visit a relative overseas. You know, it's, it's all wealth used to preserve relationships. That's, that's parameter kind of first point. Uh, second one, use it to build relationships. Use your wealth so you can create new relationships. Renovate the kitchen at home. Uh, Move to a place where you're next door to a park so that you can be more hospitable and have more people over. And when I mean hospitality, remember what Jesus said a few weeks ago in Luke 14 where you invite people over who can't repay you, not just your friends, you invite those who will not pay you back, those who actually lower your status. Spend money here on morning tea. Why? So that you can create an environment for new friendships to form. Pay a membership fee of a sporting club so that you can, down the track, meet new people and introduce these new people to the Lord Jesus. Spend money to foster new relationships with other people and with God. So spend to preserve, spend to build. Third, spend to not be a burden on relationships. Use your wealth in such a way that, that you won't burden others. That's the whole motive for work in, in 2 Thessalonians 3.8. Uh, work so that you have enough, that you won't be a burden on others. Uh, a godly Christian woman uh, found herself at one point giving so sacrificially to others that she could only afford to live off two-minute noodles. Um, in turn, that saw her health drop 
and her ability to love other people is then reduced. Yeah. Spend money on yourselves. Why? Not for self-indulgence, so that, but so that you are free to be generous rather than needy. Yeah, so spend money and roll in those costly courses that will better equip you to serve and do good. Yeah, save and invest wisely so that um, you won't find yourself in the future in, an, in a kind of unhelpful position of dependence. Uh, in fact, most of the money you spend will largely and likely be on yourself. But that doesn't mean you're spending your money selfishly. The money you spend on yourself needs to be, though, tied up with not being a burden and freeing you to serve other people. Fourth parameter, uh, spend your money to relieve the burden on others. And perhaps that's the hardest, isn't it? Give your money so that you might relieve the burden on others, whether they're in close relationship to you or quite distant. You know, that may mean giving to church. You know, if you're confident that uh, some of the burden on you and others is actually lifted by having staff here freed up uh, to, to teach and care for people, or, or if you're confident that the missionaries we partner uh, are actually serving relationships both for here and eternity, or, or if you think the activities that we're running here at church are, are good and helping people and serving people, yeah, we'll give to money, that's super. But giving to church is only a tiny part of a generous relief to others. The vast majority of giving recommended in the Bible is not to pay for Christian workers like me. It is to care for widows and orphans and the poor and those in need. Next time you budget, leave the numbers out to start with. Start with a, a kind of biblical priority list of your relationships. Uh, if you can't put one of those together yourself, come and speak to me. I'm happy to give some hints. Uh, and these four parameters. After you've worked all that out, then introduce the money. Because balance is not enough. We've got to seek to serve God with our wealth in light of the future. The future that one day people will have to give an account, just like that rich man and Lazarus before God. Use your money to serve God by serving people, building friendships. And it's going to be different for each one of us because we have different amounts of money and different opportunities and different responsibilities. Uh, you know, some people here will have to think of caring for their parents in old age and others of us won't. Money can't buy love, but money is God's gift for you to build love. This life is not for yourself. This life is for the next life. Wealth is not for yourself. It is to be spent in the service of others. Let's see if we can't be quite as shrewd as the people of the world are as we use our money to build wealth eternally. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you. We thank you that you're a generous God. We thank you that you give and provide for us in ways that we don't deserve. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wealth that we enjoy and we thank you that you've revealed to us true wealth that uh, waits for us in heaven. And Father, we ask that uh, you would guard us from loving money or even the foolish attempt to try and serve both you and money. Father, help us with our wealth to serve you wholeheartedly, uh, to learn to be shrewd and to use our money well to serve and love you and others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.